customers use our product today now in the UK more times in a month than they use Amazon. We just get on Zoom first thing in the morning. We have back to back to back to back pitches and we could go and do probably five times the level of pitching per day that we could do, you know, otherwise. And so we've been live actually for a good fully live for about two months already in the market. And what we're seeing is the uptake is is right now about four times higher than what our projection was. My guest today is Philip Bellamont, who is the CEO and co-founder of Zilch. Zilch is a buy now, pay later platform and is the fastest growing company to come out of Europe and the UK to hit double unicorn status. On the show today, Philip goes into detail on their growth, telling me how they went from 20,000 customers to over 2.5 million in just under two years. We talk about the 339 million in funding and Philip tells me about their plans for the American market. I'm your host, Mark McDonough, and this is the UKTN podcast. Our sponsors of the show, Uncapped, believe it's crazy that for e-commerce businesses to fund growth through marketing, inventory or hiring, they have to sell equity to VCs, especially when they know they'll make that money back right away. Uncapped solved that problem. Already helping over 500 businesses worldwide, they offer up to 5 million of capital for a flat fee. You pay back only as you generate sales, no dilution or loss of control. Founders simply apply online, receive a decision within 24 hours and make monthly repayments that flex with your revenue. Head to weareuncapped.com forward slash UKTN to find out more. And to avail of a 10% discount off your fees, use the code UKTN10. That's UKTN10. Now let's get into the show. Philip, thank you for, for coming on the podcast. I know you're probably in high demand at the moment. Um, I'd love to get to know a little bit more about you as a person and an entrepreneur um, with what you've done before Zilch, if that's okay. So just give me a, a bit of a rundown on your background. Sure, Mark. Well, look, good to see you. Obviously, thanks for having me on. Um, I've always been uh, an entrepreneur and, and, and everything I've done has always been in payment. Um, payment and financial inclusion effectively. So, you know, so for me, everything in, in, in previous businesses, what's really compelled me to, to really keep going, get up every morning, go to the office and, and build something innovative has been that in the past, I've been fortunate that the products we've launched have fundamentally changed people's lives. And, you know, that's quite a big statement to make, but I'll give you an example of this um, just so that you get a sense of, you know, why I say that. And basically, if, if we go back to, you know, my, my business in South Africa, what, what I noticed there was that, you know, there was a, there's obviously always problems in countries and, and problems to solve for people. But one of these problems, uh, as a good example, was people were traveling vast distances. They were traveling and being away from family in order to go and queue for hours and hours on Saturdays and Sundays just to be able to buy prepaid airtime for their phones or electricity or pay bills. And, you know, for me, this just felt like it didn't make any sense. It, it was, you know, it, it, it was such a big deal for people and their families. And so, and so the whole concept uh, that I'd come up with was how do we fundamentally change and disrupt this experience for that end consumer but not go and change all of the underlying infrastructure um, that exists there today. So ultimately, how do we affect real disruption without any change? 
And that really was the challenge. So, you know, if you think about it, you have this, this, this end customer, they're traveling on public transport and paying for the privilege. They're doing that for an hour or two. They're getting to a line that's two, three, four, five hours long just to pay bills and buy prepaid airtime or electricity. Um, and you've got this whole value chain underneath that that existed. And so basically what would happen is you take a mobile network operator like Vodafone, as an example, they would sell wholesale to big stores that have chains. These stores would then take a cut and sell it on to smaller SMEs and SMMEs. And then those guys would take a cut and sell it on to uh, people on the ground, like foot soldier type runners. And they would also make a cut and run around more locally. And so you had this whole amount of uh, infrastructure that I didn't want to bypass. The idea was to leverage this infrastructure, but transform the experience for the end consumer. And how do you do that? And so, and so what we ended up doing is we said, well, why don't we lend the money, the airtime to the customer on the weekend? And when they're on their way to work on the Monday, they can come to that infrastructure and they can repay that amount or buy some more. And this way, you've just made one small change in the experience. You've left all of the underlying infrastructure intact, but people have now got their weekends back, their family time back. They're not traveling for hours. They're not queuing for hours, and they can sit on their couch in their home. They can actually borrow the airtime or electricity on the Saturday. And on their way to work, when they get there on the Monday, they can go to that same vendor that they would typically buy the airtime from, but after the fact, pay them. And you leave all the SMME revenues intact. You leave the wholesale agreements intact. But we've fundamentally changed the model for the customer. And this was the first real example of where I saw real life-changing impact for a customer when you just really look at this and say, oh, well, that's just a financial service. It's really just the lending of airtime or electricity. Well, no, it's actually really transformed that customer's life and how they spend time with their family and go about their weekends. And so that's, that, that, that type of model really compelled me to go and keep, you know, innovating and finding solutions for customers. And so, you know, when I arrived in the UK about seven years ago, I was really interested in looking at the market and understanding where some of these problems still exist for consumers, you know, here in the UK. And, um, and ultimately, that's uh, where I started looking into BNPL, um, you know, what I would call 1.0, point of sale finance. And, yeah. you know, what people were doing in this space. And it just surprised me, you know, when you think about it. Um, you know, I don't know, Mark, if you know when the first credit cards were launched. I don't know if you, if you know. The, when the year was. that they were launched? God, no, no, I don't. Yeah, so it was the 1950s, right, right okay. that the first credit cards actually came to market. And, and what's unbelievable is that it's 2022, Right. And, and, and not much has changed. In fact, there's only two things that have changed is that in the UK, uh, you know, we've gone from zero to 60 billion of debt that now sits on credit cards. That's changed. And in the US, that's gone from zero to a trillion. The other thing that's changed is, of course, a lot of the financial institutions and, and people who work there that provide these services, they've got much bigger houses than they had back then. That's what's changed. But fundamentally, you know, you look at it and you go, why has no one ever actually done anything about this? this? There must be a better way. And so, you know, when you look at point of sale finance, BNPL, these buttons on the checkout page from some of the, the companies, the big name companies that we all know about, I think they've done a phenomenal job in taking that next big step to changing this. 
Um, you know, so if you can get a customer to pay 0% interest because the retailer is willing to pay for that for them, wow, you know, that's pretty significant. That's a major leap. Um, and obviously what we've done at Zilch is we've taken that and we, we're iterating it one step more. And by the way, you know, some of these companies that are in the market and are quite large already today, they've been doing this for 15, 16 years. So I think they would be surprised if we didn't do it better by now or have a unique model, because otherwise you would ask, what have you done? You know, have you guys learned nothing from us over 16 years? And so, yeah. and so really what, what we've done is take a similar approach to almost what I mentioned to you that I've done before in, in South Africa and Africa. Um, and that was, how do we disrupt fundamentally how the end consumer is using credit without going and actually changing the underlying infrastructure? How do we leave that whole ecosystem intact? Whereas what you find in BNPL 1.0 is there's a lot of disruption going on, but it's painful. You know, they're bypassing card networks. They're bypassing clearing and settlement houses. They're bypassing ad agencies, et cetera. You know, and, and actually, we don't believe that you, you have to create a huge deal of pain to disrupt something. And so with the same principle I mentioned, you know, in SA, what we did is we said, let's build some over-the-top way to go and give the end consumer the ability to pay over time anywhere they want as a starting point. But then most importantly, roll that into something that's just so much more than BNPL. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, today we offer pay in one, pay over time. People can collect rewards, use those as discounts, pay over time for free, earn more rewards. And so round and around the value flywheel goes. And, and ultimately, we just, I'm just you know, very pleased to see how far we've come in, in such a, a short space of time. Yeah, well, I, I think it's like, it, it's pretty impressive, the growth that's happened over the past number of years. And I want to get into that. And I do have a couple of questions around, around what you guys are doing and how fast you've grown. I, I always find it interesting, like you, you'd mentioned there and what you were doing before Zilch. And I always love to know and find out how long were you sitting on the idea? Because it launched 2018, am I right? Um, but how, how long were you actually sitting on the idea before you went, no, nah, I'm starting this company? Yeah, I mean, it, it's probably what you would expect. You know, it's, a, it's a good at least year or more. Um, so, you know, these things, the light bulb moments are kind of, you know, don't really, I think, exist. Ultimately, I like the space. I like the idea of democratizing access to free credit. Um, the question just really was how, and, and, you know, you, you start with something, you think it sounds good. And then you start testing that you have a lot of conversations, you learn a lot and, and, you know, you tweak it as you go ultimately. And that yeah. process probably took at least a year and a half, maybe a bit more. But what was great is over that period, it allowed me, I always find sitting down and trying to write patents for ideas always helps. It kind of, in my mind, it sort of, it allows you to put down on a piece of paper exactly what I think is unique, what might be defensible from a patent pers perspective. And that's kind of like the nth degree of how unique this is. Um, and, and if I can get that down and, 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 you know, make the applications, it feels to me, I feel very good at that point that, look, this is something different. It's something unique and new. Um, and that's what I did here. So we had two patents that, that are, are pending today. We created before we started the business ultimately. And, um, uh, and, and so that's sort of the process of discovery that, that I went through before we began. Yeah, I, I did read in an article that, um, I'm not too sure on the date when this happened now, but one of your one of your VCs pulled out on, on an investment round that you were expecting, 
um, which most people listening to this podcast now can relate to because a lot of them are, are entrepreneurs themselves and started businesses. Um, wh- when was that and what was that like for you as, the, as a business owner and CEO? Because, you know, like you're banking on this money um, and I don't know how far down the road you were on, on, on it being approved. Um, but like I, I had Ricky Knox on, on the show in the past where we were talking about Tandem Bank and, you know, he, he, had, he had money coming through to him that was pulled last minute. You know, but in the article, I think it was even said about Zilch that there was a possibility that Zilch wouldn't be around today if 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 you hadn't taken the the change that you took. That's that's a hundred percent true, Mark. So it's it's just you know a lot of people, you know, talk about what's going on right now, even and you know the times are tough. Actually, you know, as we know, um, and markets are flat; they're very soft, and. You know, the question is really, you know, what will you do? What's the plan? We were we were really born in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah. Um, and and what happened for us was that we so so basically the January before COVID really became a thing in the UK. So that was the March um, of 2019. So so in January we had gone out. We had seen a bunch of a couple of VCs um, the previous year, and you know we had so we had one term sheet in our hands and we loved this VC, you know, um, we thought they had a great deal of experience in the space. And, and ultimately the request was always, please do not continue discussions with others right now because they were going to do this whole ticket. And, um, you know, and so we didn't, of course, we were excited about it. We had high conviction. We went to go see them, you know, basically it was a thumbs up. We're ready to go. We just need some final details on terms, etc. Um, and ultimately, then uh, you know, a week later, the news broke about COVID, and and sort of things started to to unravel a little. And at this stage, we had put others off. We had put you know some high net worth type checks off, and um, and then we you know we got the phone call saying we're not going to do it. And all, all because and of COVID. Well, you know, honestly, I have to say their excuse was COVID, but. You know, we've always sort of sat internally. The one thing we never do is allow ourselves excuses. We always want to put ourselves in a position where we can only blame ourselves. And I think in this case, it's no different. If you see something hugely compelling, you do it anyway. Um, So really, it probably probably came down to somehow, maybe how we delivered some of the data or negotiated in the final stages. I I would say that, you know, they used COVID, but perhaps they were letting us down lightly. Um, I don't know, but needless to say, this was the reason they gave us and, and effectively pulled the term sheet and left us in a position where, you know, we had turned away others. Now those others, of course, were long gone because everyone's portfolios was 50% of what it used to be overnight. Everyone was panicking. And, and ultimately I know it's, it's a little bit eye rolling to say, but it probably was the best thing that happened to us. Only because we survived. If we didn't survive, it would have been the worst thing. But um, because we were able to fund the business forward ourselves and really take the next six months to further invest in our team, the growth, the product, yeah, um, it actually gave us the breathing room we really, we most likely probably needed before we went back to the market more aggressively and said, hey, let's go back now and really talk about something that's far more tangible further down the road many more customers, et cetera. And so we were able to then negotiate much better terms on how we did that next round. 
um, you know, only took us about 250 phone calls. <laughs> yeah, I, I read that actually. I was going to say yeah. that to you. Like like a true entrepreneur, you took to the phones and you made 250 phone calls. The, the, the only question I had around that was um, you had this VC that was on the that was on the table and you turned others down because obviously they wanted you to continue with them. And I was just going to ask you, what type of response were you getting when you went back out to the market, you were making these 250 calls? Because a lot of the time they'll go, what happened VCA? Are they not in, Are they not involved anymore? Why aren't they looking at putting money on the table anymore? You're kind of up against those questions, I take it. You know, that's true. I mean, look, so, so to a degree, we were fortunate that this VC we met very early on in the initial kind of when we went to market. So we hadn't gone, you know, with our business, we always believed we had something special. So we hadn't gone out to market and had spoken to 50 people. You know, by the time we met this VC, we probably had only met a handful. And so, you know, and so really it was fortunate, I think, um, that we had met them really early and therefore didn't have any other conversations and pretty much that conversation ultimately then went to nothing. And and we just we just sort of said, well, we're pulling the round, we'll roll forward on our own and go from there. So so by the time we then, you know, came back to market, it wasn't really um, you know, the this case of everyone's heard about us, they didn't they didn't know or didn't want to do it, or maybe weren't sure, but actually then they heard we had someone. That wasn't really the case. Um and, and one of the big pivots we also made. Um, with my co-founder, Sean O'Connor, was that, um, you know, we said, why don't we go to, why don't we actually look at family office money and, and high net worth money, which is something in, in the UK and the US is, is such a fantastic way for startups, I truly do feel, to fund early stage businesses. You know, this, this is a very fortunate thing to have in a country, in a lot of developing markets, you'd be lucky if you have VC, let alone high net worth type family office money it just you just don't have it right so um so you know and 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 more recently we know that family offices are starting to compete very heavily with vc they smart money they get it they understand they can make decisions fast a lot of them are there it's their own money they can write bigger tickets than vcs anyway they themselves are the entrepreneurs so when they say it's smart money it really is there's a lot of interesting advantages to family office and high net worth money and so you know, when I, this experience sort of left a, a little bit of a bad taste in our mouths. And so when we came back to market, we said, we will not do VC. We will actually go to family office, high net money, uh, high net worth money. Um, you know, let's go to smart money, experienced entrepreneurs, tell them what we're doing and let's go and get the round away, you know, this way. And so, you know, what was fortunate is we could do 10 calls and pitches a day you know, in the past, that wouldn't be possible because everyone wants to meet you, see you in person, you know, kick the tires. But COVID didn't, you know, that wasn't possible. So what was actually great is we just get on Zoom first thing in the morning. We have back to back to back to back pitches and we could go into probably five times the level of pitching per day that we could do, you know, otherwise. And that's what we did. You know, we went out, we had to tell the story, the usual thing, as you would expect, you know, tell the story again and again. My wife always used to joke with me and still does. She eventually, she said to me, you know, I can do the pitch for you if you want. <laughs> I've heard it so many times from downstairs now, you know, you may as well just let me do it. So, um, but needless to say, 
you know, we did this pitch about 200, 250 times. And, and that's where we really got the bulk of our first $10 million investment in. And what was interesting is we then went back to a few VCs that we liked. that were smart money. We liked them. We said, hey, guys, look, we're doing this round. Um, it's basically done. If you are keen to be part of the journey, you know, now's your chance. Why don't you join? And the good news is you don't have to be the first money in. It's already done. You know, you can be the last money in. But by the way, the terms are set. So the price is set. This is ordinary shares. There's no liquidation preferences. But we would love to have you around the business. And we were fortunate that a few came in. And so what we managed to then do is really go out, close our round, set our own terms and pricing, and get venture capital money in, um, which meant we kept control of what we were doing. You know, we were laser focused on what we were doing. We've built a business very similar to this before in Africa. And so we really said, guys, we're gonna, we just need to go execute. And that's what happened. So, so we were very fortunate ultimately to be able to go and close that round right in the middle of COVID and roll forward. Yeah, well, look, I'm a big believer in everything happens for a reason. And you've gone on today to, to raise over 339 million in funding. Um, so, so you're obviously doing something right there, bringing on the right people. Can we talk about your growth? Because a lot of companies struggle with it, right? And you've had some pretty impressive growth numbers. Like in January 2020, you had 20,000 customers. In January 2021, you had 200,000 customers. And then January this year, you had over 2.2 million customers. Like that is some growth to achieve. And I know you can see how you've how you've done that but most people can't get their head around it like how how does a company grow that quickly i don't know it's it's spectacular what you guys are doing but give us an idea as to how how, how zilch has grown rapidly and, and, and how they've done it i think ultimately it's um you know just it's it's quite a i mean we could probably talk for a for a while on 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 this specific point and obviously all of the trials and tribulations of the growth because um, as you say, Mark, look, it's it's been phenomenal and exponential growth. When we actually look at that, what we're really proud of, you know, uh, valuations and fundraising seems to be what makes the headlines. Uh, we, we're not really sure why. What we're really proud of is that we've managed to get to 2 million plus customers. We're almost at 2.5 now, faster than some amazing companies. I mean, you look at brands like Revolut, these guys are unreal, right? So, you know, you've got, you've got companies like this, Newbank, um, Robinhood, Klarna, uh, Afterpay. You've got some, some amazing businesses, market leaders, uh, TransferWise, um, NowWise. You've got these guys who have gone, you know, from, from zero to two million customers in such a short period of time. And we've gone and done it more than double as quickly as the nearest one to us. So what we've managed to get to 2 million customers took, you know, took basically a lot of these companies the same amount of time or more to get to a million, yeah. which is pretty phenomenal. You know, so, so that's what makes us so proud because what that tells us is product market fit. That, that's really what it tells us is, wow, we've achieved product market fit here, something that customers love and are returning to. And we see this in Trustpilot reviews, you know, we're the most reviewed and have the highest rating of all the companies in a similar space to us. And, and that, you know, that's something that, you know, when I'm sitting with a team and we all talk, that's what we talk about. You know, we don't spend our time sitting talking about, oh, it's a double unicorn. And it's a, what we sit, is, we sit and talk about is customers use us, they return to us 
I'm not sure if you know, but our latest, uh, our latest numbers, customers use our product today now in the UK more times in a month than they use Amazon. And well, I don't know I about you, but I get, a lot of, <laughs> I get a lot of Amazon deliveries. I mean, between yeah. me and my wife, yeah. and she does contribute heavily, uh, but, you know, we get a lot of deliveries. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and customers are using Zilch more than that. And that's really, you know, that makes us feel good about getting up every day and coming, building new features and rolling them out. So, so how did we, you know, get there? It's really product market fit. Um, you know, a phenomenal customer acquisition machine. You know, we're fortunate to have a phenomenal customer acquisition team. Um, a business model that allows us to scale, uh, leaving the underlying ecosystem intact. So. You know, for us, that's that's massive. That's huge. If you're going against the grain, you're signing up merchant by merchant, circumventing what's there. It's going to take longer. It just has to. So, yeah. you know, the key for us was building this over-the-top type approach, lightweight, highly scalable. Um, but then, obviously, you know, really the biggest challenge is just building the team, having a phenomenal team and trying to keep up with building that at the same pace of servicing customers and you have this balance, you're like, well, I can't do seven hours of interviewing a day, but if I don't do it, then we'll never get to be able to service customers and around and around you go. Yeah. And that's what really has been, you know, quite a huge heavy lift. If you ask any one of our team, they'll probably, you'll probably say, what's been the most difficult thing? It's actually trying to build a phenomenal culture and team alongside servicing, you know, all of these customers, which is a great problem to have, but that has been one of the biggest challenges. Yeah, well, look, most entrepreneurs can relate to it as well, where you can be a victim of your own success. You know, you bring in so much business and now the support tickets are building up. And yeah. like, I, I think most li most listening to this now can can really relate to that as well. Like the, the problems, like how do you get around the problem of the support tickets and requests building up and you're not able to hire fast enough to address them? A quick sponsor reminder. If you're looking to fund growth without having to give away equity, Uncap solved this problem. To find out more, go to weareuncapped.com forward slash UKTN. And to avail of a 10% discount off your fees, use the code UKTN10. That's UKTN10. Yeah, I mean, look, my, my COO would love to talk to you for hours on this point. But, you know, we we were, we were effectively leaned heavily on on a third party partner of ours actually based out of Durban, South Africa for, you know, for call center. And really what we had to do is we had to say, look, guys, we've got a core group and team here in our office in the UK because we always wanted the culture and message to shine through customer support. But we do such a good job of training internally for customer service. Why don't we go and start extending that and expanding that to a company that can basically go and scale up 10 people a day for us if we need to and train, et cetera. And so we got people on a plane, flew them out to Durban. We had people going training, trading everybody in a huge hurry, you know, and we went from sort of, you know, 15 customer support agents to almost 100 in, um, you know, in a few months. And, and that's how we had to get on top of this because it's like you say, Mark, the problem was... We were growing and it was exciting, but the issue was we almost had this this sort of negative impact or diminishing return on what was going on because the more new people we added, the worse the customer experience got for our returning great users. So, you know, because their tickets would get, of course, lost in all of the tickets coming through from new customers. And so we really sat down and said, we've only got two options. We have to either hire and train like crazy and get through the tickets, or we have to slow down 
the registration of new customers because we can't afford the experience to slide for returning customers. They are our biggest advocates. And, and, and so we sort of said, let's back ourselves to go and train and scale the team. And that's the, the direction of travel we took. And thankfully, we have, again, phenomenal team around, around me here you yeah. know, that was able to go out and do that. And, you know, um, honestly, all, all the, the props to them, uh, Rakesh, our COO, and the team, you know, Stuart, who, who runs our customer services, really had to go and execute this. And it was just a mammoth task. And ultimately, Plan B would have, would have been put the waiting list back on for new customers, guys, and, get it, and we've got to just take a few months to get out of this ticket issue. But, but that's really what happened. And, 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 and I will say, finally, technology, we leverage technology heavily as well. So, you know, chat, AI chatbots, certainly, I mean, today, probably our artificial intelligence can answer about 45% of all of our tickets for customers well. So, you know, we implemented this as well to get on top of it. But it was, a, it was hugely painful for us when we had gone from being the best rated business and we were sliding down on Trustpilot and, you know, our staff took such a lot of confidence from being the best rated company in the space. And we were very disappointed when that started sliding. So we, we put such a huge amount of effort into getting it right. And I'm pleased to say we're back at the top. Yeah, well, it, it can be frustrating, you know, like you, you're you're on to, to something big. You're, you're doing what you can. The company is growing. You're bringing on a lot more customers and things start to slide. As you said, the trust pilot reviews start coming down because people take to that to give out, you know, and it's really just getting your hand on. And a lot of people listening now can definitely relate to that. Um, when, when growing your team, I think, did you go from about 20 to over 250 employees? Um, I, I, I'm not sure how many are employed by the company now. That's, it's around that figure. So we have about 250 and then another 120 contractors, mostly in customer services in the business today. And um, that's split predominantly. So the UK is our headquarters. Uh, we have a development hub in Poland. And we obviously very recently opened our headquarters in the US in Miami. So the vast majority of those people still are in the headquarters today. Um, um, but the other two um, offices of ours are growing nicely. I'm taking that that the the recent round of funding is to help expand the growth in in the US. Um, what what can you tell me about about the US expansion? What's happening there, and what what are you looking to achieve? Well, you're hundred percent right on that. So you know, for us, there's a couple of things. We have a very specific way of thinking about our business. So. The one thing we have seen in the market over the last few years is sort of this concept of growth at all costs. Um, and you know, the problem is you've had some awesome fintechs build really cool products. There's just missing one thing. And normally it's a business model. And, and that's, that's a problem, right? Yeah. So the market's kind of gone from, oh, that's okay. You know, you've got product market fit because people seem to love your shiny card or what you do. But there's, you know, don't worry about the fact that you don't have a business model yet. We'll figure that out. Well, that's changed. Um, and the market really is not tolerating that anymore. The market is saying, well, show me the numbers. I want to understand how this becomes profitable when, um, you know, and, and what that looks like. And so, so we've been quite systematic about our strategy. And the strategy really is, Let's have best-in-class growth in our core market, the UK. Let's focus on unit economics and profitability sooner. And really, then let's go and invest heavily into new markets, like, for instance, right now, the US. 
Um, so the, the, the round of funding we did, you 100% correct. It's to continue growth and building out the team in the UK, but really is to help us launch, you know, heavily into um, the US. And so if we look at kind of lookalike audiences between our audience here and, and the US, we think the target's around 120 million people in the US um, for our business and our proposition, which is, you know, it's massive, it's huge. And, um, and we're really excited about that. So, you know, for us, we've been modeling at about, we think of four times, um, if we think about these countries as cohorts, we're thinking at a, at a sort of a 4x, um, if we looked at comparing what we expect in the US versus the UK in terms of traction. Um, but I'm very excited, you know, to say that we've been in the market already, actually, for about two months. Zilch is a little bit different the way we do our PR. You know, a lot of fintechs, the PR runs about five, ten yards ahead of the truth. Uh, with Zilch, we actually do it a little bit the opposite. In fact, our PR is normally a bit late. Um, so, you know, we really wanted to be in the market meaningfully before we talked about it. And so we've been live actually for a good, fully live for about two months already in the market. And what we're seeing is the uptake is is right now about four times higher than what our projection was. So, so that's a pretty phenomenal number um, when you think about it. And and that's why we're so excited about obviously announcing you know our official li go live and really bringing what has made almost two and a half million people in the UK so happy and so empowered each and every time they pay to the US. Um, we kind of, we, we sort of were talking about it and with the cost of living crisis, inflation, everything that's going on, you know, gas is up, electric's up, um, you know, the, the way we, everything's up. And, and so, you know, the way we were thinking about it is never before has nothing meant so much. Um, and, and, you know, when you compare 0% to 30 or 20% on your revolving credit card, it's a perfect time for us to really go and add that type of value to customers. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Because I do think that this type of approach has gotten, you know, not the greatest attention in the past, yeah. you know, but I know your, your model is, can, can you actually explain how you're different to the likes of Klarna and, and Afterpay? Absolutely. So, you know, when, when the, the, the principal question, um, that that demonstrates how different we are um, is, is simple. And that is, who is the customer? And so when you look at companies like Klarna, et cetera, the customer is the retailer. And as a consequence of that agreement, they bring a product to the end consumer. In our case, our customer is the end consumer. And as a consequence of that agreement, we bring value to retailers. And it's fundamentally different. And I'll explain one example as to why. And I'm not suggesting by any means that all BNPL 1.0 or point of sale finance guys suffer this problem, but it can happen in that you have a divergence of interest. You can't serve two people at one time. And I'll give you an example of this. If a big retailer calls one of these old BNPL providers in and says to them, hey, guys, you're only approving six out of every 10 customers at the checkout page. And actually, I would really like that to be eight because I'm losing the sales. Um, and I have this other provider here that's willing to offer me nine. So if you don't increase it to eight out of 10, we'll have to renegotiate or we'll maybe dump you and not push the volume to you anymore. What do you think that incumbent provider does? 
Yeah. No, I, I know. I know where you're going with this. Yeah. yeah. They increased the acceptance ratio, approval ratio from six to eight. And what they've just done is overlent to you and I. Yeah. And now we can't afford to repay this on time, puts us under fi in financial distress. It's not great. And that is the fundamental misalignment that you see in the, in, in the previous model. This is why we decided let's go direct to the customer. Let's onboard that customer fully. AML, PEP sanction check, soft credit check, affordability, open banking. Let's take a 360 degree view of this customer and what this customer can afford. And no retailer demands anything from us. We do what's best for the customer. And as a consequence, they are empowered to go and spend and get deals and discounts or pay over time anywhere they want. And that's fundamentally the difference between what we would call BNPL 1.0 and what we're doing. And so ultimately, you know, we really don't consider ourselves to be a BNPL provider. It's just so much bigger than that. Um, and, and this is where it comes to frequency. Our customers use us to pay on debit. So they can pay in one and get cashbacks or they could get discounts, rewards. Or they can pay in four anywhere they like. And of course, tomorrow, uh, that four could be a, a different number. could be six, could be three months. Um, and we have a, a beautiful product roadmap rolling out. But needless to say, it's this flywheel of value that the customer enjoys from us. And that's why you see our utilization so much higher than these BNPL companies. Customers are using us, in some cases, up to 20 times a month. I'll give you an example. People use a firm in the US twice a year. On average, you know, companies like Clarnum, they might use them 10 times a year. So customers are using us, you know, really more times in a month than they use these other services in a whole year. And the reason is because we're becoming that instrument that people can go to, to extract maximum value out of each and every transaction. And actually, one of our customers uh, sort of coined the phrase, we've been so busy building our product, you know, that we didn't have time to sort of sit and write a beautiful mission statement on the wall. And one of our customers through our customer services team had actually said, you know, I feel like this is the most empowering way for me to pay. And, um, and we sort of said, well, we're going we're gonna to steal that one. So, uh, so that's really become what we feel is our mission. And that's to create the most empowering way for people to pay that the world has ever seen. And that, and that really is what we are trying to go and achieve here. Where where do you see this going? Because I know it, it did very much start with buying clothes online, and then you've seen a trend now in groceries online as well. Um, where do you see it going down the road? Like, will we, will we be buying houses? Will we be buying cars? <laughs> well, I think I think the fundamental thing is wherever it makes sense, it should go, um, and that's what we spend all of our time sitting and looking at. What verticals make sense? Um, you know, there's a lot of commentary, as you've suggested earlier, around, you know, should people be using this type of credit for grocery, let's say, on non-discretionary purchases, now utilities? We actually just do not understand this commentary. We think it would be irresponsible for people not to know that there is a fee and interest-free way to defer payment and manage their cash flow for you know essential items we are all using our credit card to go shopping for grocery it's happening today and people are then paying their minimum fee and are revolving at between 20 and 30 percent per annum on the balance that they carry right why is that better 
than me having the ability to defer payment for something I need to feed my family this weekend, to take that trip that's essential, to pay for my bill that I didn't expect is 300 pounds more than it used to be. Why is it better for me to put that onto a card and revolve at 30% per annum than it is for me to actually say, I'm going to defer that and manage my cash for free. And, and we really have a fundamental problem with that. And so for us, we think that this should go to any vertical that makes sense for people. And that includes, because we're not just a, a credit product, we're a debit product, it does include things like grocery or even lower cost items, because what we see is our customers are buying that pizza without debit proposition. They're paying in one for the, the coffee. They're paying in one for the, the, the bus. They're paying in one for the pizza. They're getting cash back. They're accumulating rewards. And then they're using that to offset higher cost items and pay over time for free. And I really don't see a better way for this customer to, to manage their cash flow than what we're doing today. You see a number of companies that came into the likes of COVID and lockdown um, and they had to pivot their model because they had set it up for a particular market and they were advertising and marketing to the to their users in a particular way. Um, and that all changed with, with, with COVID. You, the majority of your growth happens through lockdown. Um, are you seeing now, because you end up, especially when you launch a company during lockdown, you kind of get a feel for the market as it is now rather than what it was like and what it might come back to. So do you do you find that there's there's going to be a lot of changes between how you first started and how you grew the numbers through 2020 to, to 2022 to where it might change and how you might grow the business moving forward now that we're we're out of lockdown and the hopefully the worst of COVID is over? Yeah. I mean, what we are seeing in the data, which is is undeniable, is we um, we were one of the first to launch tap and pay over time uh, here in the UK with Apple Pay, Google Pay, Samsung Pay. And so really bringing this functionality to offline, uh, in-store. And we timed it exactly when the first lockdown ended to really try and, again, play a role in assisting the recovery of the high street. We, you know, we thought this dovetailed perfectly with what our customers now want. We were so sick of sitting at home, right? Everyone wanted to go out and actually see people in real life and go walk into a store, uh, you know, a pub or a restaurant and be able to, to really experience life face to face. And so, you know, since then, what's happened is actually more than 55% of our volume today on a daily basis is actually offline. And so that was not the case during COVID, right? That was, that was it was probably 95.5 during COVID. It's today 55 in favor of offline. So we really think this is, is just a fascinating um, change. And it just probably demonstrates, Mark, what you're speaking to. I'm not sure. There's no other trend that I could say specifically stands out in that other than the fact that people want to have this ability to do what they want, um, you know, wherever they are, online, offline, wherever. And, and what's unique about our proposition and coming back to sort of the beginning statement about credit cards, you know, 1950s, we're in 2022. And, and you know, that functionality has never changed. What's unique about Zilch today is we provide you this one token. Of course, it's virtual, lives on your phone, you know, cards, we don't need more plastic. And, um, and the customer can choose how they want that token to behave each and every time they transact. And frankly, they can change their minds afterwards as well. You want to pay in one, do it. You want to pay over time, do it. You change your mind and go backwards and change it, do that. And what's greater, you know, you think about that and, and it's a kind of mind boggling. It's taken almost 80 years 
um, for, for a business to change the way cards fundamentally work. In the past, if you were given a prepaid card or a debit card or a charge card, it only worked that way and that's the way it worked always. Um, you know, it's such a strange thing. So, so needless to say, I think we'll see more and more offline, which makes sense. 70% of all retail in the UK still today is offline, so it makes sense. Um, and, and certainly what we like about that, and, and then our retailers love about this, is Zilch offers a full omni-channel solution for retailers to engage with customers and say, hey, I can actually bring you an offer now, not just anymore through an internet banner or online for something on my e-com site, but I can also bring that same proposition to you just as you walk into my store or, you know, to drive you into my store, etc. which is pretty unique because, you know, I think we all know there's never been a solution that provides omni-channel um, marketing the way that we do. Philip, I, I could actually talk to you for hours about what you're doing with Zilch and, and your plans in the US and, and the company. I do have one last question for you. And this is a question that I ask all my guests when they come on the show. What book have you read that has had the most impact on you as either an entrepreneur or on, on Zilch? It's a great question. <laughs> um, I'd say I'd probably pick two. I would say that'll never work. Netflix book was really, really interesting, um, you know, and, and really enjoyed the pivots that they took in the journey um, and also banking on future technology that would really go and unlock the value of Netflix, I thought was really interesting. Um, and the other book I enjoyed was um, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. Uh, and, and we've certainly experienced this. I mean, it's like everywhere you looked, we thought there was an opportunity. And, you know, so we had this term sheet. It went away. We got to the middle of COVID. We had raised some cash. We thought, brilliant, because the Future Fund had just launched with the government and they were going to match one-to-one. -one. Only one problem, it had to be equity. We had done convertible notes. Well, back to the drawing board. That's not going to work. And so on and so you go, right? And so it's like there's always, there's always something that's, that doesn't work or, or doesn't go your way or you have to figure out. And I have to say I'm just fortunate to have such fantastic people around the business and myself you know, uh, co-founders, it's just, it's just phenomenal to have people living, sleeping, eating, breathing, and worrying about this. You know, when you lie awake at night, it's nice to know someone else is too. And so, you know, I think those two books really were a fantastic um, um, read for me. And, and I can see so much, uh, so many parallels in both of them to what we're experiencing right now. The Hard Thing About Hard Things, definitely a popular book. What I'm going to do is I'm going to get to come back on the show in a year's time and we'll see where the numbers are in terms of growth year on year. Thanks again, Philip, for your time. Really appreciate that. Nice to see you, Mark. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you for listening. Before you go, could you please take a moment to hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening to this podcast? I'd really appreciate the support. And remember, our sponsor, Uncapped, offer up to 5 million of capital for a flat fee. You pay back only as you generate sales. No dilution or loss of control. Apply online decision within 24 hours make monthly repayments that flex with your revenue head to weareuncapped.com forward slash uktn to find out more and to avail of a 10 percent discount of your fees use the code uktn10 that's uktn10